I'm going to invite you to turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 24. We uh, made some comments last uh, uh, Sunday morning about uh, the end times and Jesus talked about signs of his coming and so forth. And uh, I think we want to go a little bit further in that today. Matthew chapter 24, beginning in verse 1, it says, And Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and his disciples came to him for to show him the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said unto them, See see ye not all these things? Verily I say unto you that there shall not be left here one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. We know that was accomplished in 70 A.D. when uh, uh, the Romans invaded and captured um, Jerusalem, tore down the temple. The reason that no uh, one stone was left upon another is because the temple had uh, gold... um, well, had gold in between the uh, the bricks. And so they took every stone specifically, literally took every stone off of another to dig out the gold. And he sat upon the mountain of olives, verse 3, and the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when shall these things be? And what shall be the sign of thy coming and of the end of the world? Notice they asked him three things. When shall this be? This being, meaning... When is the temple going to be destroyed? That was 70 AD. But then they said, what's the sign of your coming? And what's the sign of the end of the world? They understood what a lot of people don't know today is that those are two separate events. Jesus is coming back for the church. And then after the seven years of tribulation, tribulation, he's coming back in judgment on the earth. So I asked him, they asked him three things and he answered all three questions. Jesus answered and said unto them, Take heed that no man deceive you. I say this every time that we come to this verse of Scripture or talk anything about this subject. But I missed this for a long time. I just thought that Jesus was making an introductory comment to the things he was going to say next about the signs of the end and so forth. But I've come to realize and believe that deception is going to be one of the major characteristics of the end times. He said, take heed that no man shall deceive you. For many shall come in my name saying, I am the Christ and shall deceive many. Now, again, I've I've said this numerous times. Forgive me for repeating myself. But some of these things I think we need to say again and again just so that we come to an understanding. How in the world is somebody going to convince you or me to turn around from Jesus and the word of God because they claim to be the Christ, the Messiah? Is anybody going to fall for that? Are you? Of course not. Well, you'd have to be um, yeah, what word do I use here? You know what I'm trying to say? You'd have to be pretty loony tuned to go to, in that direction. So it's got to be it's got to mean more. There has to be a deeper meaning than just what's on the surface. And if we talk about the Christ, what does it mean for somebody to say they're the Christ? Well, that's the same thing. Or the equivalence of saying I'm the way to God. Because that's what the Christ did. The Christ, the Messiah, made a way for us to God. Now there's a lot of religions that are followed and adhered to by a lot of people in this world. That are following false doctrines and false individuals. Historical or otherwise. Because they think they're the way to God. So I think. At least it makes sense to me. I could be wrong on this. But it makes sense to me that he's talking about things like Islam, where Muhammad came in Christ's name, telling people, yeah, Jesus, he's a historical figure. We need to listen to what he said and so forth. Most people don't realize that the Quran tells you to believe the Bible. Do you know that? One of the verses in the, in the Quran, several actually that refer to it, but one specifically says to believe what Jesus said because he was a good man. Islam accepts Jesus as a good man. They just think that he was one of the, uh, a prophet that was superseded by Muhammad. And so they exalt Muhammad's words above anything Jesus said. But they accept that Jesus is a good guy, had a lot of good things to say, and so we need to follow him. I don't know how they justify when Jesus said, I'm the only way to God. If you believe that, then you can't be Muslim. So you can see there's a lot of discrepancies in in this kind of stuff. The devil always gets confused about what he's doing. 
But that could be the fulfillment or at least part of the fulfillment of what he's talking about. He said many people will be deceived. There's a lot of people being deceived by Islam. A lot of people being deceived by Buddhism. A lot of people being deceived by a lot of strange doctrines out there. Different religions and strange doctrines. Verse 6, he said, And you shall hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you be not troubled, for all these things must come to pass. They're going to happen, folks. These things are going to happen. Doesn't matter how hard or how much you and I pray, we're not going to overcome what Jesus prophesied would be. These things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation shall rise against nation. The word nation there, as we mentioned before, is the word ethnos. It means races against races. Race against race, kingdom against kingdom. That has to do with, uh, with territories or boundaries, countries against countries, in other words. And there should be famines and pestilences and earthquakes in diverse places. All these are the beginning of sorrows. Then shall they deliver you up to be afflicted and shall kill you and you shall be hated of all nations for my name's sake. And then many shall be offended and shall betray one another and shall hate one another. And many false prophets shall rise and shall deceive many. And because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. But he that shall endure unto the end, the same shall be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations, and then shall the end come. Now, I don't want to take the time and go back and say the same things about these specific points that Jesus makes uh, about uh, clashes or conflicts between races. We certainly see a lot of that happening now in our own country. But that's nothing new. It's happened all around the world, and it's just something that we don't hear about and it's not reported on. But it's nothing new. It's been going on for a long time. Earthquakes, pestilences, famines, and so forth. There's a lot of these things that are taking place in the earth. Again, we just don't hear it reported on. But one thing that he mentions specifically is persecution against the church. Now, Jesus is talking about the answers to the three things that he was asked, one of them being, when shall the temple be destroyed? So you could make an argument that when Jesus said, and you shall be killed, he's talking just to the disciples who become apostles. Most of them were martyred. And so you can make a case that he's talking just to them and not to the church at large, not to us. Yet we have other scriptures that tell us about the persecution that is yet to come, already beginning, it seems, in many respects. But notice he concludes this part of the, the saying, the, the, his answer to them, about the gospel of the, of the kingdom of God. He said, and this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness. That means with signs and wonders. That means with that out, uh, outward open show. For a witness unto all nations, and then shall the end come. Let me ask you a question. Jesus specifically talks about individual things. He's very specific about some of the things that he says. How did he know? Easy answer is, well, he was the son of God. Yeah, he was. A lot of times people seem to think that that phrase just means that Jesus knew everything. He saw everything. He understood everything. But the Bible says Jesus laid aside his heavenly power and glory and came to the earth as a man. That means he had to be operating here on the earth like you and me or he wasn't meeting the qualifications for a, a man born of a woman. Do you have any memories of heaven before you got here? you remember anything about the world or eternity or anything like that before you were born? Well, no, that would be reincarnation. The Bible says that's not how it works. Then how could Jesus... How could Jesus hear and know and, and uh, remember things that happened that he was a part of before he came to the earth to be born and made a sacrifice for you and me? How did he know? He couldn't have had any of those memories. He couldn't have had any memories of his pastime with the Father or, or from eternity, the beginning of eternity, which I guess is kind of... Foolish way to say it, there is no, no beginning to eternity. But he didn't have any of this information as far as memory is concerned. So how did he know? He doesn't say, my father has shown me that this is what it's going to be. 
Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not questioning the truth of what he said. But how did he know? With the specifics that he gives as part of his answer, he had to have seen or known something. Something had to have been given to him of God. Because, again, if Jesus is operating as a man, unless God revealed it to him, he wouldn't know the future any more than you or me. But how did he know? He continues along in this chapter giving some uh, further information about what was going on. Skip down with me to verse 36. Some of the things he talks about has to do with events taking place in the tribulation and the day of judgment which comes at the end of the tribulation period. But verse 36, Jesus said, but of that day and hour, and he's talking about the rapture, his coming for the church. But of that day and hour knoweth no man, no, not the angels of heaven, but my father only. That means Jesus didn't know either. One of the things that Jesus said is that we'll take everything that's his and he'll reveal it to us. He'll show it to us. Well, the only way that it would be possible for this scripture and this principle to be true, that no man knows the day or the hour, is, would, ha- would be for Jesus to not know the day or the hour either. Because if he knows the day or the hour, according to what he said, he can't withhold that from us. So God's the only one that's got that information. God's the only one that knows. If Jesus knew when he was coming back for the church, we could simply pray according to John 16, verse 23, and ask him to tell us. Now, apparently, some people have done that and have thought they've got the answer. What was it? 87 reasons why Jesus is coming in 1987? And then when that didn't happen, 88 reasons why we were wrong about 87? People have always tried to to predict what was going on, and nobody's going to know. But Jesus said, But of that day and hour knoweth no man, no, not the angels of heaven, but my Father only. But as the days of Noah were, so also shall the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days that were before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered into the ark. And they knew not until the flood came and took them all away. So shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. And he talks about two people in the field, one left and one taken and so forth. So he's got to be talking about the rapture of the church, catching away of the church. But notice he uses Noah as an example. And he specifies certain things, identifies certain things about Noah's day when he could have... Very easily said, it'll be just like Noah's day, the same things people did then, they'll do now. But he mentions certain things specifically. Well, that would have to mean that these are signs of the end for us to recognize. That was the answer to their question. What, what about the signs of your coming and the end of the world and so forth? So notice what he says. As the days of Noah were, so shall the rapture be. For until the flood... As in the days that were before the flood, verse 38, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered into the ark. That sounds like business as usual. But he specifies eating, drinking, Marrying and giving in marriage. Now, I want, to, I want you to look with me to some other things that the Bible says. Really, my purpose this morning is primarily to identify what Jesus said about the end, to identify what Paul said about the end, and then Peter gets in uh, in some of his letters. He talks about it too. So turn with me over to 1 Timothy chapter 4. Let's compare the things that the Holy Ghost said to the apostles with what Jesus said. First Timothy chapter four, verse one, he said, now the spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter times, some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. Notice first that he says the spirit of God specifically, expressly, specifically told me things about the end time. Why? Why would the Holy Ghost make such an issue of the end times? Other than or accept that he wants the church to know. 
Now, it seems through some of the historical writings that we have, comparing them to the, to the letters written to the church, most of the disciples, I'm talking about the apostles, the original 12, most of the disciples felt like Jesus was coming before the end of their lives. Every generation has thought we're the generation that will see Jesus come back. I think we are. And one of the reasons I think we are is because in my human reasoning, I can't see how much further the earth could go and still qualify for what Jesus said it would be like at the end. But every generation has thought that for some reason or a variety of reasons or whatever. So the Holy Ghost specifically told Paul some things about the end. He has to want us to know. He has to want us to know. And notice what he told Paul. Now the Spirit speaketh expressly or specifically that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith. There's the deception again. Giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. Speaking lies and hypocrisy and having their conscience seared with a hot iron. Forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from meats which God has created to be received with thanksgiving of them which believe and know the truth. For every creature of God is good and nothing is to be refused if it be received with thanksgiving. For it is sanctified by the word of God in prayer. So notice certain things that he says. He says the Holy Ghost specifically told him, revealed to him, the deception that would take place in the church giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. There's two ways you can look at that phrase, doctrines of devils. One is, it's teaching of the devil. The other is, it's teaching about the devil. See, there are some doctrines that the devil certainly inspires. Every false doctrine, the devil is certainly inspired. Every um, belief system that uh, false religions are built and based on are inspired of the devil. But notice how much things have changed just in the last 20 years with teachings, movies, TVs, shows, and stuff like that regarding devil activity. There's a lot of teaching out there about the devil that's going on from a secular, secular position or point of view. Notice he also talks about seducing spirits. Now, what does he mean seducing spirits? The Bible tells us, Paul told us, that if we maintain an understanding and not be ignorant of Satan's devices, then we'll be better equipped to stand against them. So what are seducing spirits? What does he mean? We usually uh, attach a sexual connotation to the word seducing or seduction and also the word lust. And they really don't have a sexual connection. It's a principle that's used in sexual immorality and, and falling into sin in that regard without, without question. But the words themselves don't have a sexual connotation. And there's a difference between being seduced and being compelled. To be compelled is to be forced into something. Well, that's not what seducing is. Seduction is just influence that leads you to do what your flesh already wants to do. So it speaks, in my thinking, it speaks more to this condition of the church and its unwillingness to stand up for what's right and wrong and do right and reject wrong. But he talks about they'll be led away by seducing spirits and doctrines of devils, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron. Notice the next thing he says, forbidding to marry. Jesus said something about marrying too, didn't he? That we just read about the days of Noah. Now, Jesus said in Noah's day, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage. Here, Paul seems to indicate that marriage will be opposed for the purpose of stopping it. Well, both of those things can't be right. There's got to be a way to reconcile this with reconcile what Paul said with what Jesus said. Now, the word forbidding means to prevent or to stop. 
the word marry just simply means to wed. Let me give you a a possible interpretation of this scripture in my own words. Refusing to accept the understood meaning or definition of marriage and commanding to abstain from meats, which would be like a vegan lifestyle. See, the word forbidding to marry can mean, doesn't have to, but can mean that one of the issues of the last day is where people will object to the true meaning of marriage as between a man and a woman. Now, if we accept that as a possibility, then where it talks about speaking lies and hypocrisy and having their conscience seared with a hot iron, it's talking about Christians. It's not talking about people in the world, the unsaved. It's talking about Christians who will be seduced because their flesh wanted to go that way anyhow into rejecting the understood definition of marriage, the universal definition of marriage, which brings us into the present day situation with the LGBT, QRST, whatever. Another thing that he mentions along with marriage and of course we would certainly identify sexuality in, in, uh, associated with that is he talks about commanding to abstain from meats which would be a vegan lifestyle or paleo diet or whatever but notice he talks about the importance of the controversy about diet now folks you don't have to look very far to realize that the world has never been as focused on diet as we are right now And it says that, that a part of the work in the, uh, in the last days in the church will be commanding to abstain from meats. But he says God created all the meat and it's good and it's sanctified by the word of God in prayer. You know what that means, don't you? Bacon is of God. <laughs> it's right there. Furthermore, it says God commanded it or God made it and sanctifies it by the word through our prayers. So not only is bacon of God, God wants you to have bacon. (laughs) Be doers of the word, folks. (laughs) But look at the the specific things that he's talking about. Now, what would Paul think about this while he's telling the people? We don't have any indication that Paul saw our day. We don't have any indication that Paul saw or had a vision to see these things as opposed to the Holy Ghost just witnessing to him. But if you compare what Jesus said about Noah's day and what Paul says about the end times, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage. Business as usual. What would the apostles thought, have thought about the way that the world is connected through the Internet and such for business opportunities? See, if we talk about things being as they normally were, another place Jesus talks about building, adds building in there with a sign in in, uh, Luke's account, I believe it is. But if we consider the world that we live in, that we just take for granted. I mean, a major crisis occurs when we lose Wi-Fi. That's just what we take for granted. Talk to your kids, and they can't imagine a world without Wi-Fi. But what would that have looked like to the apostles? You can invest in any country you want to, limited only by the time of day that you're operating. You can invest in China. You can invest in Japan. Any and every other country that has a stock exchange, which is most of the major ones, I guess. What would that have looked like to the apostles? I propose to you folks that if Paul was to appear in our day, he'd look around and say, well, I prophesied this stuff, but I sure didn't know this is what it meant. I think a lot of things that we take for granted meet the criteria for for, uh, 
these prophecies. Look with me to another place where Paul talked about the end time in 2 Timothy chapter 4. Beginning in verse 1, he says, I charge thee therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead at his appearing in his kingdom. Preach the word. Be instant in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and doctrine. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but will after their own lusts heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. Other translations talk about that or translate this in the manner people will look to hear what they want to hear. Now, he's talking about in the church, not talking about in the world. Certainly wouldn't be anything new for any and every doctrine and weird thing to be presented in the world. Paul had experience with that when he was in Athens on Mars Hill in making his claim of Jesus as the Messiah before the, the Greeks. He said, I see all around me numerous shrines and statues and altars unto different gods and you've even got one to the unknown god you still think that you are of the opinion that there's another god out there that you don't know and that's who he told him about that's when he told him about god being the creator of the universe and so forth but this is talking about the church this is talking about the church Folks, keep your eyes on the church. There are certain things that you can look for to get an idea of how close we are to the end. One is Israel. Jesus told us about that as a part of the scriptures that we didn't read over in Matthew chapter 24. He said, keep your eye on Israel and the other nations. That brings me to another thought before I continue. When Jesus talked about wars and rumors of wars, when he talked about the things that would happen, We know that he's talking to the disciples, but we know that he's talking about things that would outlive the disciples. But in a broader view, is he talking about, here's what the American church can look for? Or is he talking about, here's what the people of Israel can look for? See, if we put wars and rumors of wars in context with Israel, they've never had a time where there wasn't a rumor of war, other than the time that they weren't a nation. See, it means a whole lot different to us. Wars and rumors of wars, it looks a lot, whole lot different to the Western world, the, the American church, than it would to the Jewish community, the Jewish people. Who's he talking to? Well, since he didn't specify otherwise, I think we can take the things that belong to us as ours. But there are some things about those prophecies that might be specific to them. Certainly the destroying the destruction of the temple was specific to them. So who's he talking to? Here Paul talks about the church, the condition of the church. Let me start again in verse 3. He says, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. I would submit to you folks that that was taking place a lot in the church in Paul's day, the day that he wrote these letters. We know that there were things that he wrote to combat Gnosticism. We know there are things that he wrote to combat the work of the Jews, trying to tear up the churches and so forth. What he says to the Galatians, what he writes to the Galatians about, what are you being so stupid for? Why are you going back to the keeping of the law? It wasn't the keeping of the law that got you saved. It was believing in Jesus. Well, they weren't adhering to sound doctrine. So there was a lot of things that were going on there that would fit this same criteria. But Paul seems to have the idea, seems to have the understanding. It's not just an idea, but he understood by the Holy Ghost that this thing was going to go longer than he expected it would. And so here are some of the signs. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lust shall heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. And they shall turn away, notice verse 4, and they shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned into fables or turned unto fables. Again, I don't think we've got a lock. I don't think our generation has a lock on the concept of the idea of people believing fables. But it's gone so far that it's just ridiculous. 6% of America believes in unicorns 
This is not me making a joke, folks. I know it is a joke, but I'm being very serious. 17%, and this is in the category of people aged 18 to 34, really believe in zombies. Now, I'm not sure if that's what Paul meant when he talked about fables. But there is such a willingness on the part of the young generation, younger generation right now, to accept anything and everything. Anything and everything. Churches are being selected by multitudes of people on things like what's your position on homosexual marriage? I was reading just a couple of days ago an article that another minister friend of mine sent about a megachurch in a certain major city in America that has come out and taken their position as inclusive. And just overnight, the megachurch changed into a pro-homosexual, pro-gay marriage congregation. And didn't lose anybody over it. I wonder if that will qualify. Notice that Paul tells Timothy that the only antidote or way to combat this is to preach the word. Don't mix the word with something else. Just preach the word. Just preach the word. Let's look at some other things that the Bible tells us about the end. Turn with me. Turn back a chapter to uh, chapter three, Second Timothy chapter three. I think we used this last Sunday morning. Now Paul is not talking about the church. He's talking about the world. So there's, these are things that we can look for in the world. This know also that in the last days perilous times shall come. For men shall be lovers of their own selves. The word perilous, one of the meanings of the word perilous means strength reducing. You remember when we started reading in Matthew 24, Jesus said because of the iniquity, that word iniquity is the word lawlessness, a lack of law and order literally. Because of iniquities, many people's hearts will wax cold or the love of many will wax cold. There's a whole lot of things that people aren't having to answer for nowadays, folks. Things that, that are not in dispute, whether or not they're right or wrong or criminal, even. Things that are admitted to, that there's no consequence. That has an effect on the younger generation, particularly. I guess it affects every generation. It disheartens the older ones, of which I consider myself. But it creates a mindset in the younger ones that you can do anything and everything you want to. With all these riots that are taking place and protests that are going on, the destruction of property, who pays for that? Who's held responsible or accountable for that? Well, insurance companies wind up footing the bill. But nobody seems to have to answer for the destruction that they cause. We've had a lot of things happen in the, on the national scene politically with the mishandling of classified information and the things surrounding that. No question it's not, whether or not it's criminal. No question whatsoever. Nobody seems to answer for that. At least the people in power and people in importance don't. Well, beyond just being disheartening, that has an effect on the society that we live. It seems more and more people have the idea that it doesn't matter what you do. You can get away with it. You've got city, major city police forces that are ordered to stand down and not enforce the law. I know it's a hot button issue, but concerning immigration, the previous administration clearly set out orders, don't 
enforce immigration law. That's lawlessness, folks. And nobody ever seems to answer. Well, how's that going to turn out? Is that going to get better? Well, we hope so. But can anybody say with confidence that they're sure that it will? I can't. This know also that in the last days perilous times shall come. For men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truce breakers. Natural affection is, uh, is commonly identified as homosexual activity, but that's not what it really means. It means no love for your kin. In other words, it's talking about the breakdown of the family. Without natural affection, truce breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good. False accusers is one that we see a lot because when one group doesn't like how somebody else or the position somebody else takes, they just call them racist. I voted for Trump and who knew that I was a racist? Who knew that was what caused me to vote for Trump? It's just ridiculous. But it's prevalent. It's commonplace in our country now. It's as if nobody cares about the truth. Just get in their way. Incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good. Please notice that one. Despisers of those that are good. Despisers of those that are good. The application of tolerance in our society right now has no basis in truth in in any way whatsoever. We're supposed to ignore the radical Islamic ties to terrorist actions when they're screaming Allo Akbar when they do the things that they do. But we got to watch out for those Christians. Those Christians are far right people. And, and many people literally believe that many of the terrorist attacks and the attacks of violence are because that's who we are. It's just nuts. We live in an insane world. Despisers of those that are good. Traitors. See a lot of that in the classified information leak stuff. Traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. Having a form of godliness. Having a form of godliness. I, I, I wish I could say I'm amused, but I'm not amused. I'm frustrated. Tremendously frustrated. When it's, anytime somebody's trying to make a political point or win a political race or something like that, they're so quick to attach their position to Jesus when it serves their purpose. Recently, just within the last week or so, Nancy Pelosi, who's just a gem of a person, (laughs) said that Jesus would be for, Jesus would be opposed to to the wall on the border. I guess my, my main question would be, what in the heck does she know about Jesus or what he would oppose or whatever? We live in a crazy world, folks. Traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God, having a form of godliness. Every political election, you'll see somebody trot out their attendance to church Maybe the second time they've been there, other than the other political campaigns they've run. Having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof, from such turn away. For of this sort are they which creep into houses 
and lead captive silly women laden with sins, led away with divers' lusts. Notice this next phrase, ever learning. Ever learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. One of the things about the last days, the operation in the world, is how people will claim more and more how that they're just operating from science. They present global warming or climate change as a scientific fact. It's not even close. And if it is a scientific fact, why does the North American organization that puts out all this climate change data, the NOAA, why do they have to fabricate the information? If it's a fact, shouldn't it show? People are trying to use what they call science to justify the position on homosexuality and gay marriage and so forth. There is no science for it. The transgender issue is being debated as a choice rather than our gender being identified by biology. Saw one survey here recently that said 21% of Americans think transgenderism is a mental issue. Mental mental illness, I meant to say. That number shocks me. Only 21%? This is the world we live in. Ever learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Let me turn to another scripture. 2 Peter chapter 3. Peter didn't say much, but he said something that I think is very significant. Beginning in verse 1, 2 Peter 3, 1. This second epistle, beloved, I now write unto you, in both which I stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance. In other words, he's not telling them anything new. He's just reminding them of something he's told them before. That you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior. Verse 3, knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers walking after their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. For this they willingly are ignorant of. They take this position on purpose. For this they willingly are ignorant of, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, whereby the world that then was being overflowed with water perished. But the heavens and the earth, which are now, by the same word, are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and the perdition of ungodly men. I want you to notice what he says and identifies as clear-cut, factual. Here's, here's how it happened. And that is the creation account of the world. He's not talking about the world in Noah's day when the flood occurred, which a lot of people seem to think that he, he's that that's the subject that he's referring to. But that world didn't perish. The people of that day perished. But there wasn't a different world system before Noah and after Noah. That world did not perish. The world that then was that perished was how God found the earth after Satan's destruction thereof, of some pre-Adamic condition here on the earth. We don't know much. It gives us a little hint or two, but that's about all. But where it says in Genesis chapter 1, the earth was without form and void. Literally, it means he be, the earth became without form and void. That's not the way God created it. But the earth became without form and void. And then the creation account is given how that God created something from nothing, from chaos. That's what Peter's talking about. So in that context, notice what he says. He says, Come, in the last days, there will be scoffers or mockers about the things of God and the things that he identifies that they're willingly ignorant of is the creation account of the world. Thirty percent of Americans 
Believe in the creation account of the world. Believe in the Genesis account of creation. 30%. You can see the inroads that the teaching on evolution has had quite an impact on our country. So Jesus told us about wars and rumors of wars. He told us about deception being prevalent. He told us about race riots and countries warring with each other. He told us about earthquakes and pestilences and famines, which are all more prevalent on the earth today than it ever has been in the history of the world, recorded history of the world anyway. Jesus told us that it would be like in Noah's day, the coming for the church would be like in Noah's day where people are eating and drinking, buying and selling Luke's account ads, buying and selling, giving in uh, in marriage and so forth. Paul then tells us that the position taken against the true meaning of, of marriage will be one of the end time signs along with diet. And the resistance of many to accept God, the things God made as the way he made them. Now Peter tells us that a rejection of the creation account, or Genesis account of creation, I should say, is a sign of the end too. What are we going to do with all this stuff? I'm going to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We'll close with this. I'm going to begin in verse 50. Paul says, Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, neither does corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, He's talking about physical death. But we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump. For the trumpet shall sound and the dead shall be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. He's talking about receiving our glorified bodies at the resurrection or at the return of Jesus. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump. The word trump, is a, it means voice. It doesn't mean trumpet. It means voice. A lot of times people read about the seven trumpets over in Revelation and they attach this meaning to those trumpets. It doesn't mean that at all. It's a voice. There's a shout from heaven and Jesus appears. I'm not sure how that works. I don't know if he just screams, hey. But whatever it is, it draws everybody's attention to the sky. That means people on the other side of the world at the same instant will see Jesus when we do here. Got to be some physical laws that are overcome for that to happen. But that's the way it happens. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption. Talking about your glorified body. Your flesh and bone body has to give way to your glorified body so that you can be in the presence of God. For this corruptible must put on incorruption and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible, our bodies, human bodies, shall have put on incorruption, received their glorified bodies. And this mortal shall have put on immortality. Then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O O death, where is your sting? O grave, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, He wants us to do something with this information. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable. Remember Jesus said, he that holds out to the end shall be saved. 
Here's what Paul's talking about too. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. So what does Paul tell the Corinthians concerning the rapture? He says it could happen at any minute, any moment, any instant. We know from the things that, that have been written in Jesus' account, Paul's other accounts, and Peter's account, that there are certain signs that we can look to, but it could happen instantly. So we should open our eyes, according to Paul. We should be ever ready to do the work of the Lord. I have to assume that that includes, well, it certainly includes winning the lost, bringing people into the family of God. That's not all that the work of the Lord would be, of course. But it certainly had to be high on the list. So he said we should work and labor to reach those that don't know. Now, in Paul's writings specifically, particularly, Paul gives us information that he knows the world doesn't have. Jesus gave us information so that we could prepare ourselves and be ready. And the signs are clearly identified. A number of signs are clearly identified. Several of them stand out. I think Peter's reference to evolution and the impact of evolution is certainly one of them. I think that evolution teaching of evolution and so forth would certainly fall into the category of being deceived. Peter says people are willingly ignorant of it. He knows that the Genesis account was available to everybody. So he takes the position that anybody that rejects what the Bible says about the creation is willfully ignorant. That would be 70% of America if the um, surveys are accurate. We know marriage is going to be an issue. Jesus said that they would be marrying and giving in marriage up until the end. But I'm certainly intrigued by Paul's statement about forbidding to marry. I think it has more of a connotation or meaning concerning the traditional marriage, what we understand universally is marriage. Now you're in, under threat of losing your business if you just take a position that marriage is between a man and a woman. Just this last week, we've had a court decision that forbids high school coaches from kneeling down and praying before a football game. Now, the point hadn't been raised, but I have no doubt whatsoever that if there was a Muslim football coach that brought out his prayer mat before the start of the game and prayed to the East, we'd have all kinds of legal organizations protecting that right. But you've got to look out for those Christians. You can't ever tell what they're going to do, and you've got to make sure that they are not able to exercise their rights, free rights toward religion. Where's this going, folks? I don't know. I can't see it getting better, though. Can you? These are things that were prophesied that Jesus said they must come to pass. I don't believe we've seen the end of them. I believe the genie's out of the bottle on a lot of this stuff. The gay marriage thing, the homosexuality, the transgender issues. I don't think we're going to be able to gain much of that ground back, if any. In fact, I see it going further and further, faster and faster away from what's right. How are we going to live? What are we going to do about this? Is it possible that things come to the place where the church has to be silenced to the point where we go underground? 
That sounds just wacko, doesn't it? The last thing Jesus said about the signs of the end in Matthew 24, he said, And this gospel shall be preached unto all nations for a witness or with proof and evidence. And then shall the end come. Two ways we can go on this, folks. We can either focus on and major on the, the signs and the, the, um, the bad stuff that's happening and increasing. Or we can recognize that Jesus said that a sign of the end, an unmistakable sign of the end, was the gospel being preached with power. I don't keep up with the news like I used to. I used to devour anything and everything. I used to want to know everything that's going on and have all the details and so forth. I found that to be a hindrance after a while. It affected my prayer life. I caught myself praying things that I wanted to be that would be good for the country to to have and to return to. but I was praying out of my own will, my own desires, rather than by the Holy Ghost. And so the Lord dealt with me. The Lord dealt with me about not staying so informed. Doesn't mean he wants me to be stupid. But I get just enough information to know what's going on or try to walk the line of having enough information to know what's going on, but to put my focus on God and the power that he's going to pour out upon his earth. God does not shy away from fights. He's not a fighter. Neither does he expect us to be fighters. But there are times where we have to stand up and fight. If and when that time comes for us, I want to be so equipped with the word that the power of God shows the power of the devil to be impotent. Minimal. And since the Bible talks about Jesus and the glory of the church of the last days, the glory of the latter house being greater than the glory of the former, that's going to have to be some wave of miracles. Because if you read the book of Acts, even though it happened and occurred over a 25 or 30 year period of time, it makes it seem like these things are happening every day. And I think that's on purpose. I think the Holy Ghost gave us enough of a record a big enough sampling of the power of God so that we would have the idea and expect it to be every day. I can see a lot of the church being seduced by politics. I can see a lot of the church being seduced by media. I can see a lot of the church being seduced by social um, social media, Facebook and all that kind of stuff. And I've got a lot of complaints about Facebook. I don't care about Facebook, folks. If you're going to post things that are ungodly, just make sure you block me. That's, that's all I ask. I've got enough to pray about. But a lot of this stuff becomes consuming. It'll consume you if you're not careful. And there's one and only one thing that I want to be consumed with, and that's the Word of God. There's one and only one thing I want to be consumed with, and that is knowing that the will of God is for signs and wonders and miracles to be that which brings in the precious fruit of the earth, the the end-time harvest, the last-day revival. That's what Jesus said. He said, This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all nations of the world for a witness. For a witness, look it up. It means with signs and power accompanying. That's what he expects. That's what he's planned. And if all the other stuff must come to pass, that must too. Folks, we need to be so charged, so spiritually charged in these last days, so conscious of the power of the Holy Ghost that dwells within us, the greater one, 
that leads us into victory, that orders our steps, that will give us the words to say and remind us of what Jesus said. We need to be so charged up with the power of God that none of the rest of this stuff matters anymore. Wouldn't it be a tragedy if when we get to heaven, people that have gone on before us say, well, tell us about the, the political events and stuff of your day. Rather than say, wow, you guys had some power. Jesus is coming again, folks. He could come any time. One of the things that I get from this, and I'll close with this. One of the things that I get from this list, or these lists, I should say, all these things that are identified as signs of the end, one of the things that it impresses me about, or is impressed upon me, about the day that we live in is simply this. There is not one prophecy. There is not one activity that is identified in either the world or the church that has not been fulfilled to some degree. Now, the further we go, the more and more these things may be fulfilled. The further we go, the more and more deception may become prevalent in the, in the body of Christ. But if he came today, we could still say there was a lot of deception. There is but one thing yet to happen before Jesus can come. And that's the voice that shouts from heaven. That's it. We're living on the edge of eternity. Did you hear me? We're living on the edge of eternity. We need to take as many people into it with us as we possibly can. Let's pray. Father, we love you and we thank you so much for your faithfulness to tell us what to look for to know of your coming. We see the signs, Father. We may not understand the entirety of the meaning of all of them, but some of them are just too hard to miss. Even we can see them. And Father, as the world continues to go down, influenced, more greatly influenced by the power of the devil than ever before. We thank you that your people are influenced by the power of the Holy Ghost more than ever before. Father, we pray that you would work in us and through us and with us at your direction, at your will, in such a manner as it would be or as it was when Moses went before Pharaoh he threw his staff down and it became a serpent the magicians did the same thing with theirs but Moses' serpent swallowed theirs up I pray Father that you would impress upon us to such a degree that we could not miss the reality of the greatness of your power that you are greater than the devil and the power in the name of Jesus in us, the church is greater than anything and everything the devil can do. Father, let us never forget as we keep ourselves in your word. Let us never forget the authority that we have that you gave us, that Jesus restored to us, Let us never forget the power of the name of Jesus. And so, Father, we pray even as the early church prayed in Acts chapter 4. Grant unto us boldness to speak your word. By stretching forth your hand to heal and that signs and wonders may be done in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Make us a people of power, Father. We're not asking you to give us more power. You've already given us everything that there is. We simply ask that you would open our eyes to see what we have and give us boldness to use it. That many would come to know you.
We ask this in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen. Amen. I believe these are the perilous times that Paul talked about, folks. But as we stay in the word of God, there'll be times of victory. Let's all stand. We thank you so much for being here. We thank you for your your love for the word. We thank you for putting it first in your lives. We're living in a wonderful time. The greatest time in the history of the world. Where the whole world will see the glory of God in manifestation. Amen. Amen. We love you. God bless you. Have a great day and come on back and be with us tonight for Healing School.